Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. My guest today is Dr. Deborah Horowitz, one of the first veterinary behaviorists in the United States. And we are going to be talking about the, the theme of feeling supported and what that looks like. So welcome to Unleashed at Work at Home. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I'm excited to talk to you. Interesting topic. I've never been interviewed about this type of topic before. It is sort of a, a twist to, to bring on pet professionals and ask them to talk about something outside their area of expertise, the thing right. that they've been trained right. and educated in. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've found is that people have so many really, really valuable insights that can be helpful to others. And the reason you and I are talking about this is Dr. Lisa Radasta talked to me about how amazing you are at providing support and encouragement for other female professionals in the field, but particularly women who are becoming veterinary behaviorists. I, that's an important part for me of what I do. Um, I, I I think they need support, and I uh, because it's hard to be a professional woman. And secondly, is that I'd like to replace myself, so to speak. Um, I've been doing this a long time. I think I'm well known in my field, and uh, been instrumental in some changes and things. But I'm not going to do this forever. I'd like to replace myself with strong women who um, need supporting and sometimes education about the right way to be strong and mm-hmm. not necessarily arguing with everyone or, you know, being um, almost too controversial about how they stand up for what they believe in. You can stand up mm-hmm. for what you believe in and assert your need to be heard or change things without being confrontational. Yes. And that is quite the balancing act, isn't it? Well, it is. It shouldn't be because men who stand up for themselves and assert that they think they're right, uh, never worry about being confrontational per se. Um, They sometimes, we all can be confrontational and it should be obvious when you're confrontational based on your body language and the words you use but it shouldn't be based on your gender. Right. It should be based on what you say and how you say it and uh, the, f- the force of the truth of what you're speaking about. Right. And a willingness to um, embrace conflicting ideas and, and recognize that being able to speak up for your idea 
doesn't need to be confrontational. Just we need to be able to say that I can share a thought that is in conflict with someone else that we, we tend to shy away from conflict at times as if it's bad, but conflict is actually where growth can occur when people do um, come together and share their thoughts and, and find what, what works. I think especially women, when they're um, confronted with their point of view as being incorrect, uh, may tend to back down. And I don't think that, I think that there are, there are all sorts of people you talk to. So it's not always men. There can be other women who feel the same way. But when I graduated from veterinary school, I graduated and date myself in 1975. The class before me in veterinary school was six women. My class was 20. There was a lot more because my class only had 65 people in it. But to put that in perspective, when we got into clinics, they didn't have a woman's locker room because they'd never planned to have this many women. Mm -hmm. So there was um, a disconnect for a lot of the male faculty, not necessarily based in thinking we were inferior or we weren't good at what we did, but it was certainly unfamiliar to them um, dealing with women. And one of the things that happened a lot in veterinary school was a lot of uh, raucous jokes. And um, when you when you hear raucous jokes in a mixed group of people that you know well, I think you tend not to be offended. At least I'm not. You know, mm-hmm. somebody makes a, a raucous joke and it is funny, I'm going to laugh. But if it's also de- denigrating, I'm going to say something about it. But when you're in veterinary school, you are not in a position to say something right. about it. And I think the men that were there that did these kinds of things, number one, they were not aware or hadn't learned that these things were not only denigrating to women, they're threatening. They're mm-hmm. threatening because you're being treated. They don't think they're treating you a certain way, but they are using phrasing and images that you might find offensive that are not offensive to men. And so it's threatening because you can't necessarily say anything. Um, Not quite sure how we we got on that. So there's a, I think it sort of made me think that, well, you know, you've got to be able to tell uh, in your own words why you think you can do what you're doing. Um, I, I, I don't know if this is what you wanted to hear, but uh, I remember when I went to veterinarians to, in order to get into veterinary school, you had to have experience working in veterinary practice. So I went around to different veterinary practices and asked if I could work there, you know, in the kennel or in assistance. And there were many veterinarians who would say, well, I guess veterinary medicine is okay for women if they stay in small animal. There was a, a lot of um, hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And while it was discriminatory, it wasn't based on me personally. It was based on the mores of society at that time. Mm-hmm. And some of those mores have changed and some of them haven't, right? But it was not, it was not something women did. There were women in veterinary medicine, but um, I have colleagues who are much older than myself and they were one or maybe two in their veterinary class. And so that was, un, you know, it was unusual. And the thought of women wrangling cows and horses was just not something that the profession 
thought about because the profession basically started out as being for farms. In fact, Michigan State, where I went, was a land-grant university. Land-grant universities were created to help farmers. So the state gave money to form a veterinary college that was to help farmers handle their livestock better, have better yields for their livestock, to keep them healthy, to keep the food chain safe for the people who were going to consume it. And it was not directed at being sexist or not sexist. That was how it started. And that was something, even though women worked on farms, Mm -hmm. our society looked at their roles differently at that time. Yeah. So I came into veterinary school at kind of the end of that. But since there were 20 women, I felt supported by my other women because we could complain to each other. I made one really good friend and we're still friends to this day, 40 plus years later. And, um, you know, wending our way through as women in this unchartered area. And I was actually very supported by my parents and especially my father. I have to say, especially my father. Uh, My father was a college professor and um, he thought, well, you want to be a veterinarian, go for it. You know, we'll help you do that. And I was very fortunate. My parents helped pay for my school. Um, And I was very supported that way. And I was very supported uh, by my husband, who I met when I was in high school. And um, I always wanted to be a veterinarian. And my husband got into Cornell. He was a year ahead of me in high school. So he went to Cornell. And uh, I applied and didn't get in um, for a number of reasons. One of which is Cornell, their veterinary school is also a land-grant university. And at that time, land-grant universities had in their their mission to take people from their state because Mm -hmm. they paid to educate you and they wanted you to stay there. So I applied to and got into Michigan State. So he was in upstate New York and I was in Michigan. And he transferred to the University of Michigan, which was 60 miles from East Lansing, which is where I went to school. And that's how we spent that early part of our relationship. And then he moved to East Lansing. And, and anyways, eventually we got married. And uh, my, my husband um, passed away in 2017, 16, I guess. No, 2017, <laughs> 2017. But he was always my biggest supporter and everything I wanted to do. And um, I never, if someone had told me when I graduated from veterinary school that I would have ended up doing the things that I did, that I would perhaps with a lack of modesty say that I'm well-known and world famous in my field, I I never would have thought that. Um, And that what I wanted to do would have evolved from just small animal medicine, doing small animal medicine. I got an interest in behavior and um, way back when. And uh, the first residency in behavior was at the University of Pennsylvania and it was headed by Victoria Voigt. And when the residency applications became open, I had just had my second child. She was not very old. My husband said, oh, do it. I said, I have to move to Philadelphia. He said, we can work it out. And I opted, I decided I'm not gonna do that. And I didn't, Um, but I started seeing behavior cases. And I was fortunate enough to be supported by a couple of uh, early adopters of behavior, one of which was Victoria Voigt, uh, who I considered a mentor. 
I decided to go back to school. I mean, the story is complicated. We moved from Michigan to St. Louis, where I now live. So I had to get licensed in St. Louis. We had options to move other places. I said, I want to move to Missouri because they have reciprocity. And my husband said, okay, you know, you don't want to go back and have to take state boards and all that. And uh, I worked part-time and then I started seeing behavior cases. And at some point I wanted to become board certified. The American College of Veterinary Behaviorists received uh, accredita- uh, provisional accreditation, in other words, to form a specialty college in 1983. 1993, excuse me, 1993, and gave their first examination in 1995, and I was boarded in 1996. At that time, there were no residency programs, and in order to become boarded, you had to show 10 years of experience seeing cases. You had to have um, expertise in certain areas uh, so that you could sit for the exam, and it was suggested to me that I go back to school and um, get some of those courses. And so I applied for a master's program. And Dr. Victoria Voith, I will always be grateful for her. Uh, And she's, you know, she's not past, she's alive, she's around. Um, Because she agreed to be uh, one of my mentors on my committee, so that Mm -hmm. I could do this. Now, I took all these courses, it takes statistics and animal behavior and all, all sorts of things that we, we weren't trained in, in veterinary school. Mm-hmm. And um, I am, she was disappointed. I didn't finish my master's, uh, but I passed my exam, which was my goal. Uh, and <laughs> I didn't finish my master's. Here's uh, talk about feeling supported. The, I went to Washington university here in St. Louis, a well-known university. And I had a wonderful uh, sponsor there, a, a psychology professor. And, um, but in order to do a master's thesis, they wouldn't let me do it in my practice. In other words, I couldn't solicit the cases within my practice, come up with a, a master's mm-hmm. topic, and um, then submit that as a thesis. And they said I couldn't do that. I'd have to do it outside of my regular practice. And, and I said, I, I, I can't take any more time from my work and my family. If I could do it in my, if I could solicit the cases within my practice and get enough to, you know, fulfill my experimental theorem that I was trying to prove, I would have done it. But the reason I didn't was that. And, and talk about the need for support. I felt like my family had supported me enough <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, I was at school, I was studying. And uh, you know, when you study for boards, it's a full-time job. I was also supported by my children, although I don't know what they would say about that. Um, (laughs) I remember uh, I have three children. They're they're 43, 40, and and, uh, 37. And at the time, uh, what happened is the older ones, one day a week, they were responsible for dinner. And they remember this as like their mother was never around, but I was busy studying or, or had to go to a class or whatever. When I say responsible for dinner, we're not talking a five course right. meal. It could be reheating some, um, but you know, they supported me in that. And, and I would say that um, my children are very support, supportive of their spouses in all the things that they want to do in order to further their a career is just such an empty word. Their mm-hmm. their um, mental and emotional self fulfillment 
which I think is an important part of, um, yeah. of who we are. Yeah. And I think that that's very true. The mental and emotional fulfillment piece can include your career and, and we're all lucky when it does. Um, but the real point of being here is about actually being inside and connecting to what is most meaningful inside. It does sound like you've had some incredible support over the years from mentors and family and people. You said your father was like an early supporter of you and that you also believe it's important for women to be able to say like why they want or believe what they're, what they're thinking. Um, Was that something specific that you felt that he encouraged in you or are those two pieces separate? I don't know that I can, you know, separate those. Uh, my father was a sociologist, so he studied, you know, how people interact and, and how groups of people interact. So he, I guess, did believe in finding out what people think. Nobody knows what anyone else's dinner table conversation was like, but I can suffice it to say that at Michigan State, when... Um, when you were a freshman, you had to take certain required courses and one of them was sociology, but you could place out of the semesters by taking an exam. And that was no problem for me. So you can imagine what our dinner table conversations were like. (laughs) And I think that was where I learned that expressing your opinions and being aware of other things going on around you was an important part. And um, when you talk about feeling supported and, and other women, it's a, it's a, a struggle, and I see it with all my children. I have two sons and a daughter. Of where do you want to be in your career fulfillment, so to speak, and and your obligations to raising your family? And I will say, if there's something that I want to um, share and give hope to the people listening to this, is this is what I strongly believe. And Lisa um, will tell you that I probably say it to her a million times. And I'd say it to all my children, you can't have it all. You can't have it all at the same time. Right. And it is, it can be very heartbreaking to think you can have it all at the same time. What you don't realize when you're young, and I didn't either, your working life is long. You have a long time to work. You really do. Your time when your family needs you is actually, if you're lucky enough to live long enough, I mean, we never know how long we can live. In that whole timeline, like I told you, I've been out of veterinary school 40 plus years, okay? And one of my kids is 43. So there was a a time when, yes, that I didn't practice as much as maybe I would have liked, but Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, I was able to. And that was also because my husband supported me. When I started doing behavior, there weren't a lot of people doing it. And one of my colleagues who's remained a good friend is Dr. Gary Landsberg. And um, he was my work husband and I was his work wife. We spoke so many places together. We spoke at so many conferences. We did so many projects. We altered, I think, the face of veterinary behavior by supporting each other to let's try this, let's do this, let's write these handouts, let's work on this book. And, and I was fortunate that um, I, I had him as a friend to do that. And again, my husband, I traveled a lot. 
I traveled a lot. And at one point, my husband left his corporate job because he wasn't happy anymore and started his own business, which gave him more time to be at home. And, and he, I remember the first time he had to take the kids to the pediatrician. He'd never done it because I always did it. But yep. um, it was good. It was good for my kids to see because they share all that yeah. stuff. It was good for me to finally, not to say I wasn't frustrated, not being able to do the things I wanted to do, that I didn't even know I wanted to do, right? Right. But then you just, everyone's disappointed. But looking back, I think it was the support of really of my husband uh, more than anything. I have great friends who supported me and all that, but my husband was a huge supporter of my dreams and what I wanted to do. And he never once thought that they were impossible. And so, um, you know, I was very lucky. I met that person very early and, uh, and we traded. I tell people I went to school and he, he taught school. We were in East Lansing, Michigan, and he drove 60 miles to Jackson, Michigan, which is where the, the prison is. And he taught school. And then when I graduated, he went back to school to get a master's in computer science. And so we lived closer to where he drove to school. And then I drove to my work and um, we sort of seesawed back and forth over, you know, whose priority was going to be the number one at the time. Uh, the most difficult time for me was when we moved from Michigan to St. Louis because I didn't have um, support of family. I didn't know the veterinary community. There were all sorts of things, but it worked out okay. It worked out great, you know. Yeah, it sounds like you two are an amazing team. We were. And I would have to say, um, <laughs> uh, it probably isn't the topic of this conversation, but we had a great life until we didn't. So I, I can't really complain. It, uh, you know, I met him when I was 16, and he passed away shortly before I turned 65. So um, when you're with somebody for 50 years, you did. With, I thought we'd grow really old together, <laughs> but we didn't. But yes, we were, we, like I say, we were yeah, lucky until I, we I, I feel very lucky too. Um, much of what you're describing about your husband is reminding me of mine. Like he is definitely my biggest cheerleader and always sure that I can do whatever it is that I'm setting my mind to. And it's, it's really wonderful right. and um, not something to be taken for granted. Right. But I also want to caution, I don't know, maybe I, I don't know, sound like an old lady, but I I want to caution young women in their 30s and 40s not to be disappointed that they're not moving forward quickly enough. I I think that, um, number one, I I don't know that you necessarily have the um, emotional wherewithal to make all the compromises and deal with people in the right way to keep moving forward through your career. There are lots of obstacles. We can talk about whether the men are the obstacles or the institutions are the obstacles, whether your lifestyle is the obstacle. There are lots of obstacles. And um, if you just assume you're in it for the long haul with fits and starts and stops and regos, I mean, if I hadn't if I hadn't taken some time off after I had my first child, 
or even my second, mm-hmm. who knows if I would be a veterinary behaviorist. I mean, those gave me opportunities to reevaluate what I wanted to do. And when we moved to St. Louis, I worked part-time at a couple of practices and I didn't, I didn't like those practices. So then that and the practice community here at the time was different than the one that I was, there were a lot of individual clinics and I liked working in group practices because you learn a lot from other people. And so it wasn't necessarily to my liking and that impetus, that disappointment actually made me decide, well, uh, how can I, when then, then board certification became possible, how can I become board certified? So that unhappiness and disappointment made me look for something else that, I mean, I, I loved what I did. It was, it's, I don't see patients anymore, um, but I, I loved it. I loved the challenge of um, helping people keep their pets. And I was felt really fortunate to be able to do that over the long term. Yeah. You see a lot now about burnout and veterinarians mm-hmm. having burnout and the suicide rate on veterinarians is really high. Um, and I don't think I am qualified to speculate on that, but, um, being supported is part of being able to deal with the stresses of being someone who makes decisions that make people unhappy. When people come to you in crisis, when you talk about being supported, okay, I've been supported And in my behavior practice, I feel the need to support my clients because when people come to you with a behavior problem, most of the time they're in crisis because their pet's done something that has fractured that bond, maybe not irreparably, but it's not what people expected. And they, they don't know what to do. Many people just give up their pets, but the ones who come see a veterinary behaviorist want to try and change that. And supporting them through their crisis and helping them understand, number one, while they might have done something that wasn't helpful, that wasn't their fault. Right. They didn't know. They didn't know what to do. Number two, that um, sometimes it's the wrong pet, the wrong household. Um, it's dangerous. I dealt with a lot of aggressive dogs. Is it safe for you to have this dog in your household with a toddler that doesn't know not to do this or that or the other thing. And um, so supported, I mean, I'm with, I'm trying, you know, we veterinarians spend a lot of time supporting their clients without necessarily getting that support back from them. And I think that that does fuel people don't understand. Um, I worked at a specialty practice for a long time, 10 years. And the head veterinarian there who owned the place people used to say, well, you're only in this for the money. And he would say to them, well, if you will pay my mortgage and send my kids to college, I will treat your pets for free. So it's it's really demoralizing to veterinarians when pet owners say, you're in this for the money. Right. It, it's just, first of all, it's not fair. We got to charge you something. Secondly, I think what drives it is this crisis mode that they're in. And the third thing is, Many, many, many people do not directly pay for their health care and they don't know how much it costs. Right. They don't. My first practices were in the city of, you know, in Michigan, in the suburbs of Detroit, where at the time when the UAW was very strong 
And I feel very comfortable telling you that auto workers that I treated their pets made more than I did as a starting veterinarian. Mm -hmm. And when they would find out how much it would cost to fix a broken leg or whatever, they would say, well, my, my, I can get my son's leg fixed for free. And I used to try to nicely tell them, well, it's not really free. You pay for it one way or, or the other. Yeah. But, you know, if you didn't have health insurance, you'd have bigger salaries, but then you'd have to pay for your health care. So uh, I think that's a big taxing thing on veterinarians. And if there are people who listen to this who aren't veterinarians, I would tell them, support your veterinarian. They're doing it because they love animals and they like people. Mm -hmm. You can't be a veterinarian without liking people because veterinarians are like pediatricians. You can't get the information that you need without someone telling it to you. And so you have to like people and talk to them. And that, and sometimes our willingness to listen to them does not mean that we're also willing to be berated about things that aren't our fault. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that was all really helpful and, and nice how you were able to sort of break down the various pieces that, that do get in the way for, for people to, um, to feel supported on the day-to-day level uh, with that. If they're not taking the long right. view and they're in this moment, um, it there's a lot that gets in the way of that. And COVID has made that particularly hard. Indeed. Um, it takes twice as long to see a pet when you have to go get them from the car, bring them in, examine them, phone the owner. And, and when people are separated from their animal and don't know what's going on, you feel marginalized. It's not the veterinarian necessarily that's marginalizing you, but it's like if it was your human baby and um, they take them from you, you're like, what are you doing to them? Yeah. I mean, are they upset? And if there's the trust there, then you're okay with that. But, um, you know, the pandemic was hard on everyone and it was very difficult for veterinarians. The suicide rate went way up during the pandemic. So that was horrible. Yeah. Well, you started by saying you'd like to replace yourself with strong women who can and do this job and, and hopefully love it. Um, what do you see as the future for these women as they're moving forward? Oh, they're fabulous. They're, I have no qualms about, um, I've served in various capacities in the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. Um, I've been very active in writing books and speaking in spreading dissemination behavior information around the world to my colleagues. I have no qualms that there are plenty of really talented men and women, Mm -hmm. but my focus has always been in supporting the young women. I I call, I I am much older than many of them. And um, so I've had two residents and I call them my chicks uh, because I raised them. So they're my chicks. And then uh, these other women, I just think they're wonderful. I think they're amazing. And every chance I have to either call upon them to do something that comes my way that I might not want to do. Um, and I, I still get asked, but not as much because they get asked. That's the goal. That's the goal that, that they're, they're competent. I never had any doubt that they were competent at doing what they were doing, but it's hard. It's hard being a professional person. They have families, they have children, they have husbands, they work for universities where they have to publish and uh, it's difficult. And uh, it, it, I think takes someone who says been there, done that, and you can do it too. Yeah. That's just the way that happened for me. 
and I want it to happen for them. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And one of the one of the key ideas in in positive psychology and developing resilience is that when we fill ourselves up, we have more to give others. And so you saying, um, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to show up for others is part of the fact that you recognize the need to take care of yourself and make sure that, that you were able to do what you needed to do. And so now with your cup full, you can support others and that pays forward in these lovely ways. Right. I, they have, I have the, these women have admitted they're afraid of me. I don't know why <laughs> they say that. You can ask Lisa that. Um, I, I, and they say, well, we're afraid of disappointing you. And I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think they've ever disappointed me. And I haven't told them that. But um, I have told sometimes, you know, that's just not the right way to approach things. Tone it down, <laughs> you know. Uh, and the, my brother has said this to me, if you always have to be right, then someone has to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I tell that to them. I mean, it, when we're passionate about something, we think we're right. And maybe we are. Maybe we are right. Maybe we do know better. Maybe we do have the answer. But berating someone does not necessarily um, help them understand. Yeah. And arguing with someone who doesn't agree with you doesn't make them understand. And sometimes, you know, you have to say, well, you know, I'm wrong or I'll consider what you have to say. But by and large, I'm not even by and large, my young veterinary behaviorists that are female and the male ones too, but the female ones, they're, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. They're just amazing. And I feel like the profession is in great hands. My only complaint is we're not growing fast enough. So that's my next uh, endeavor is to try and help us grow the college a little faster. But uh, I did have a question related to that because the the information I'm seeing is that there's, you know, just over 80 veterinary behaviorists. No, there's almost a hundred, almost a hundred. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Great. I thought I had heard that along the way, but when I was Googling for it earlier today, I was only finding the 80. So just over a hundred. And then in 1996, almost a hundred, we're not over a okay. hundred, almost, almost, almost in 96, when you were certified, how many people were certified that year? And how many were women? Do you remember? Uh, let's see. The college started with eight diplomates that were grandfathered in. And um, the first group of examinees, five passed. So they became 13. And when I passed, it was myself and um, Gary Landsberg. was the third person? They'll come to me, but we were the sweet 16. Oh, wow. So we're the 16. We were the sweet 16. That's how I remember it. We were the sweet 16. So it was myself and Gary and, oh my gosh, there was one other person there taking the exam. I know, I know one person was there that didn't pass. So that's not fair to say. And uh, I, I'll have to email Gary and he'll remember. <laughs> See, that's why he was my work husband. Yeah. Because he remembered stuff that I didn't. Um so at that time, of the initial eight, uh, I, I'm going to have to remember this, there was Kathy, Victoria, Bonnie, Sharon, Elizabeth, Ben, RK, I think there was one more woman, I can't remember at the moment, 
don't play this part and don't never forget me, forgive me. Um, Tom Wolfley. So there were three men and five women at that time. From the from the initial eight that founded it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh when we passed, who was it that took the example? <laughs> I can see two of the three. I can't remember the other. Well, I am um, quizzing you about something from 1996. There were, <laughs> there were there were four people who took the there were four people who took the exam and three of us passed. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, but how how marvelous to be in the first 16 to do this. Right. You know, that to- was nice. And we had an op- we've had an opportunity to shape the college and and I think Sometimes those of us who are there from close to the beginning are are probably, and myself included, not good enough of pulling back and saying, shape it any way you want. But on the other hand, I think we we have a vested interest that what I've what I've heard before and what I try to live by is the past has a voice, but not a veto. So don't try to silence the voice of the past, because sometimes the voice of the past has reason. And you don't just throw it away because it's old. There was a reason that we did it that way. Um, If you think, well, okay, you did it that way. What are the reasons? Here are the reasons. Well, two of those reasons aren't any good anymore. Well, that's true. But what about the other three? Are they still valid? Do we still have those reasons? Or can we tweak it to make those reasons more relevant or change, modify those reasons? But I I think there's a tendency sometimes old sayings and that's how old I am, you know, to throw away the, the baby with the bathwater. We started with something that we didn't know where it was going to go. And we didn't know how big it was going to get. We didn't know how we were going to educate the people that we had because universities didn't have residencies. And for then we had residencies at universities. Now we don't. Universities are very strapped for money. So we are trying to have um, non-traditional, non-university residency-based and we're struggling with how can we require certain types of education for these people? How can we provide it? Because we're not very small. But what was the core reasons that we began? And what were the core values and educational needs that we thought were important to become a boarded mm-hmm. veterinary behaviorist? And how we accomplished those would might be different then and maybe different now. Which one of those core needs are still core needs? Yeah. And which are not? If they're not, then then we need to get rid of them. And, and they might not be. Uh, veterinary medicine has so many boarded specialties. Now they have boarded zoological medicine, which includes the behavior of zoo animals. Uh, there's boarding in large animal equine medicine and um, cattle. And I don't think that they do a lot of behavior, but again, they know certain aspects of that. So what parts of veterinary behavioral medicine um, are are we to be actively involved in educating our members in mm-hmm. where we're always available to help anybody? Because if you understand behavior in general, then you can help someone understand behaviors in the specific. If you right. look at what's important to that species, particularly. Right. So. right. Yeah. Behavior is such a, a powerful uh, lens to go in to find out what's actually going on. The things that drive behavior Um, I've learned over the years, do not differ that greatly between species, Mm -hmm. and neither does learning. Mm -hmm. There are some particular 
ways that different species try to fulfill those needs. But as species go, they all they they have pretty much a lot of the same needs, humans included. Yes, absolutely. And once understanding how to to meet the need for that particular species may be a challenge. But um, you know, the need for safety, for example, all species have a need for safety. All species have a need for predictability. Mm-hmm. All species have a need to reproduce. They all do. And uh, those are big drivers of behavior. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many overlaps. It's really fascinating. The more I've dived into uh, human psychology, a lot of it I had been doing during all my years as a dog trainer, because of course you don't train dogs, you train people to train their dogs. So it was already doing some human psychology there, but it's been really interesting. Um, And, you know, when I used to teach classes and people would go, well, does this work with kids? And it was like. Yeah, it does. I mean, the method will vary a little bit, but the concept of, you know, approaching it from what do I want? Well, you can't put a leash on yeah. your kids. You can't put a head, you know, <laughs> I mean, you can't actually, I don't know if I should say this, but um, I have three kids. And uh, when we moved to St. Louis, my husband traveled uh, either two nights, three days or three nights, four days, almost every week. So it's just me and these three kids. And I would travel back to Michigan to visit my family. And sometimes I'd fly with them alone. And um, my youngest is six years older than the oldest. And he was fleet of foot. Let's put it that way. I mean, when he got something in his head, man, that, that boy could go. So when we were walking through the airport, I would put my daughter in the stroller and I would hook my youngest to my oldest with one of those bungee cords because <laughs> I never was going to lose my oldest. <laughs> you know, I could see him. He was bigger. And my youngest was happy to go wherever his big brother went. Um, And it was, you know, basically psychology there. And um, so, yeah, some of the same principles apply. I guess I put a leash on my Well, you used a little bit of a management tool to create the behavior that you want to hang out with your brother. Well, you know, when you're walking through the airport, it's you're walking through the airport, you you know, you only have so many hands and there's so many people. And it's easy for kids to get separated. That was really the genesis. Of right. It. it was easy for one kid to fall behind. And, and I, I just, I really didn't lose anybody. And I am. Indeed. I they're all still here. They're all still here. They're, <laughs> Indeed. They're all still <laughs> here. Happy adults. They made so, it through. That's right. They don't call every day and say, thank you, mom, for not losing us. But I'm sure they think about that all the time. <laughs> Well, when this episode comes out, you can send it to them, remind them. Well, probably you'll cut that. That's probably more than people want to know. <laughs> but, um, you know, whatever. Anyways, I've enjoyed our time together. Thank you. It's been a delight talking with you. I, I really appreciate it. And I do hope all the listeners will check out the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists to find a behaviorist in their area who can help with any of the of the behavior concerns, because we certainly do need more veterinary behaviorists out there. I'm, I'm really glad to see the field growing. We're working on it. That's my next. I guess if I have a next chapter, I think that'd probably be it. I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> say no more. Good, but trying. See, I'm I sort of wanted to say no to this, but but I'm so glad you didn't. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't either. And and I have a lot of respect for Lisa. You know, uh she recommended me to do this, and um I consider that a um affirmation, and I appreciate that. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's really been so much fun talking with you today. I'm so grateful. It has been fun. So let me know when it's unleashed and people can hear it. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks a bunch. Bye. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com where you can be steady, be strong, and belong.